Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Michael Blavis, MD, FACEP, FAIUM, about guidelines for the appropriate use of bedside general and cardiac ultrasonography in the evaluation of critically ill patients, published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Blavis works as a professor of medicine at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine. He works clinically in the St. Francis Hospital Emergency Department in Columbus, Georgia. He is a founding member of the World Interactive Network for Critical Ultrasound, WinFocus, and Society of Ultrasound in Medical Education, SUSME. He is the third vice president of AIUM and the immediate past president for the Society of Ultrasound in Medical Education, as well as being the subspecialty editor for the Journal of Ultrasound in Medicine. I would first of all like to welcome Dr. Balivas to the SCCM podcast, and uh, we will proceed directly to our uh, discussion. The first question I have for you, Dr. Balivas, is the list of various ultrasound technology applications that your committee has developed for all of us intensivist practitioners. And uh, maybe you could also share with us your personal feelings about the technology. Certainly, Dr. Lin. Uh, The list is fairly extensive, and that's why it's been effectively broken up into two parts for the guidelines. Everything that's cardiac-related and other topics. The other topics include procedures, whether it's uh, needle guidance for thoracentesis or paracentesis or vascular access, and all the way to long ultrasound, trauma ultrasound, superficial applications. So the diversity of applications that are potential is quite broad. And uh, to see how broad, we just have to look abroad, if you pardon the pun. If you look in Europe, where there are a few centers where ultrasound has been practiced for quite some time, the applications really range from head to toe. And that is one reason we had to break it down that way. In reality, we probably have not captured every possible application that we'll see come on board in the next few years. But we did focus on the ones where some data is available from critical care literature or credible related literature. How big was your work group? And maybe you could tell us about the various members uh, that came together to form these guidelines. The work group had about five central figures uh, that did a fair amount of the organization. The entire work group, I believe, stretched out to almost 20 people. And it kind of depends on uh, when exactly uh, and at what point in the development we look because members would sometimes come and go. The beauty of the work group was the diversity, especially in the leadership. You had critical care, trauma surgery, you had uh, pulmonary critical care. There was also input along the way from folks that were anesthesia-trained backgrounds, emergency medicine. So there was really a wealth of training and background. And in fact, one of the key things is that we had an epidemiologist helping us who is actually a pediatric intensivist, has quite a bit of cardiac experience, and that added to the diversity and also kept us on a very high-quality pathway because of the epidemiological background which he had. That sounds quite thorough. As a critical care anesthesiologist, I do personally use ultrasound in a variety of clinical scenarios and 
I think it's been boon to my own practice and the various academic institutions that I've been affiliated with, such as Stanford and UCSF, also have also been very enthusiastic. I think one thing that probably is in the minds of all of our listeners of Zoro's Eye is um, the you know vastly different types of experiences, training that uh, various intensive care practitioners have in terms of using ultrasound technology. I would like to ask you to share your thoughts about the types of training that you feel will best allow people to start incorporating ultrasound technology in their practice and whether uh, you have any feelings about the ways of judging competency in getting people to practice ultrasound technology. Certainly. Probably the best way to uh, train people is in their fellowship. I think ultimately, and I'm kind of skipping to the end, partially because of uh, my background and experiences, ultimately what we'll see is that medical students learn ultrasound throughout their four years of medical school. Then when they go into their residency, whether it's internal medicine, surgery, anesthesia, emergency medicine, whatever it is, they will hone their skills further. And then, for instance, for those that will be doing a fellowship program, uh, fellowship is an excellent place to finish that training. For myself, uh, that would have been in residency, and there's actually a fellowship that I did in emergency ultrasound. So I think there are multiple pathways. And one day it will be very easy for trainees because they will emerge uh, from medical school with a great deal of knowledge. In the nearer term, it's probably more realistic to attain that training in residency, which we're starting to see more and more, depending on the background clinically of the individual, and also and obviously in fellowships. That doesn't help the practitioner who's already out there practicing. And obviously there are many, many people in critical care who have been practicing. They finished their training some time ago and didn't uh, get to learn ultrasound. For them, probably the pathway that's most common is a conglomerate of different experiences. Those include uh, courses and then online education, putting it all together to form a training pathway. And SCCM has actually published such a training pathway, and uh, it includes a recommendation for credentialing pathways for hospitals, looking at a number of scans that are recommended, number of CME, probably For most practitioners, it's a one-year pathway when they're in private practice or in academic practice and have not had much exposure to ultrasound, and they can complete it within that time if they have the time to spare. That's obviously a very realistic pathway, maybe not the ideal. There are some uh, centers that will allow critical care practitioners to come and kind of have mini visiting fellowships for several days or a week or two. That's a great way to get experience. Probably the key is to have documentation of the experience, so documenting CME certificates for many courses, and then scanning experience. One of the keys is to make sure that there is QA of the scans that are being done by the individual. Ideally, it's someone in their own department that can kind of look over their shoulder. But in reality, that may have to be something that's done remotely. As far as judging competency... We all want to get away from numbers. 
In general, uh, most uh, different specialties have agreed that for a fast exam, one needs maybe about 25 scans on actual patients. And then for other things, let's say you wanted to learn how to scan the gallbladder well, it's probably more like 75. The wild card for those practicing critical care is the variety of scans that one may do. The more you learn, the easier it is to learn the next application. So you probably don't need quite as many experiences. However, when you talk about complicated scans, such as more advanced cardiac, obviously the number would have to go up. I think in time, there will be ways to assess competence using competency-based measures. We know that some commercial entities and uh, some certification agencies are working on computerized methods for assessing competency. When I trained fellows, I've started about three fellowships in my career, I really uh, used a combination of discussing with my fellows, uh, asking them questions, but also personally seeing how they scan, how they integrate uh, the information they obtain into their medical decision-making. And such an approach may be possible in a residency or fellowship, but it's very hard once you're already in practice. So there, some kind of testing is going to need to be necessary, whether that's something that's put on by SCCM, other societies, or at the very least, some internal criteria at the hospital level that shows that person has acquired a number of scans and can uh, perform them adequately. And that'll definitely be a challenge for the sole practitioner, especially in a community practice setting. Your discussion about ways to document the scans and to have it be looked at brings up an interesting question for me. At the various fellowships that you started at your current medical school, as well as your own clinical practice, how do you go about doing the quality assurance? Do you have monthly conferences or weekly conferences where the practitioners get together to look at the images? Who actually is the operator of whether the clinical interpretation was correct or not? Sure. And that span of time kind of covers quite a bit of technological change. So when I started my first fellowship, we would actually, all of us, would videotape the entirety of our exams on VHS tape. There may be some listeners that don't even remember what that is, potentially. (laughs) And then progressed over the years to recording them digitally on the ultrasound machines. The importance of the digital or other recording, but a real-time recording of the scan, is you can assess what the practitioner, whether he or she is a medical student, resident, fellow, or an attending, is actually doing. Are they able to identify the portions of the heart they might be after or that this is a DVT in the leg? And you get a very good feeling for that. The other part that you alluded to is it makes for a great educational session at the same time you're doing QA. And I used to do this once or twice a week where I would gather interested residents, my fellow, and uh, usually some attendings, and we would go through the video And uh, I would QA it, and everyone would learn from it because you're constantly seeing anatomy. You get to uh, learn how to teach as well, which is obviously kind of the highest aspect of education is when you have to teach others because you're critiquing people's scans, always in a positive way. But when you're required to do some detective work as a resident or a fellow to understand why your own scan went astray or why you missed something or a colleague of yours, I think you could learn a lot. And that's why I'm a big advocate of video, which is much easier than 
ever in the past given the current technology but also some of the kind of middleware that's available out there that can interface between one's machine and their electronic medical uh, records at their hospital. I wanted to ask you about that, so that's a nice segue to my next question. Do you actually put these video clips and images into the formal medical record? So the answer is yes, and it depends on the setting you're in. Where I am right now, I actually uh, save videos of every exam I do, but I only generate a typed report. That is suboptimal for me, but currently there appears to be no other way to do it at this facility until there's a transition. In many, however, there is a capability to actually electronically print images as part of a report and sometimes videos and have those mated with the electronic medical record. And uh, some of us are able to have access to PACS systems, especially when they're run by an IT administrator rather than any one specialty. So you can put your images and videos on a PACS for everyone to see in the hospital, as well as a report. But obviously that works quite well in an electronic medical record as well, especially those that can play videos. Otherwise, the videos may be stored for QA and the still images are displayed for everyone to see in the patient's medical record. Sounds good. I think something that is probably in the back of the minds of many of our listeners is the question of the impact of using this technology, our own interpretations of these images relating to the various imaging specialists that we work with in our hospitals. I wanted to ask you about your experience with that, uh, both in you know, your capacity as a physician who does this and also in your position as somebody who is setting policy about this. What has your experience been in terms of working with radiologists and the possible tension that comes up with whose turf is this really? It's a very complex answer and a very interesting one. And obviously, the relationship between clinicians using ultrasound and radiologists has evolved over the last 20 years. 20 years ago, it was almost uniformly tense, although I must admit, somewhat earlier in my career, I had several radiology colleagues that were very amenable to teaching me, uh, sharing their knowledge, helping me do QA. Now, if you look at societies like AIUM, American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine, half of the board is made up of radiologists, and they're extremely supportive of ultrasound use by all of us. If you look at the Society of Ultrasound Medical Education, the board includes radiologists. There's a cardiologist on it, I believe, uh, and the radiologists are all very supportive. There is still a component to the traditional uh, radiology ultrasound community that is somewhat reluctant. Obviously, there's concern about reimbursement, and a lot of times that comes out as uh, concern about quality. While sometimes that's invalid, it can be valid at times because they've had the experiences perhaps with certain clinicians that didn't scan very well or accurately or didn't know what they found and then refer to scan to the radiology department. What's interesting is that when people start out, they're fairly unsure. They may get an ultrasound image of something they understand, they may not. And that is one reason that we all stress focused ultrasound questions. So let's say you're looking at the lung. Does it look like there's pulmonary edema or does it look like the patient's lung is dry? And that can help us in our clinical setting. And the reason I use that as an example is we're seeing more and more 
that intensivists and others are developing ultrasound applications that radiologists have never used. So the beauty is that when you're doing a lung ultrasound, the radiology community has really kind of scoffed at it in the past for good reason, but they've never developed any applications. So you're not stepping on their turf in a way. Additionally, as an intensivist, uh, a cardiac ultrasound would be very important. And obviously, that's typically not within the radiologist's purview. I think in time, we'll kind of all learn to play in the sandbox very nicely together. And there's been tremendous improvement over the years. But there's room for more improvement and more understanding. And I think at that same, during that path, most of our ultrasound skills will continue to improve. And that'll make it easier to kind of get along. And I think the last point I would make for those that might be doubting their ultrasound skills, in time, whether you're an intensivist uh, that is pulmonary critical care, anesthesia, surgery, emergency medicine, any background, if you do an ultrasound examination enough, you will actually be the most skilled person in the hospital in it, not just because it's long ultrasound and radiologists don't do it, but maybe uh, looking for DVTs because you're actually at the patient's bedside a lot of our radiology colleagues don't have the time or the ability because of the way the facility is set up to scan uh, themselves. They're managing multiple different imaging modalities and are reading an ultrasound performed by an experienced technologist, but it's still not doing it themselves. And they're not putting it into the clinical context. So we, in a way, have a very unfair advantage because we've examined the patient we're talking to our patient, we're doing the ultrasound exam, and we immediately integrate it into our clinical decision-making. So I think ultimately, many people will find that in their focused area, in their focused question, they have higher expertise in time than traditional imaging specialists who have, in a way, multiple disadvantages despite a great amount of training in imaging. Just as a follow-up question, so it sounds like in your own practice and with your experiences at various institutions and training programs, it doesn't sound like you utilize imaging specialists as the ultimate validation for the clips that you've generated. I tend not to. That is separate from whether uh, another imaging test is ever ordered or not. Many of us live in different clinical realities. So I may make a diagnosis and I'm comfortable with it, someone else that I admit the patient to or their care is transferred to later may decide that they do want this other imaging test. By and large, when I was in more academic clinical practice settings, I did admit people from the emergency department, in my case, simply based on my ultrasound exams. And oftentimes, there were no other follow-up imaging or confirmatory imaging studies performed. But to get to that level takes a little bit of time. And also, you have to make sure that your colleagues that you're working with are comfortable with that. Perhaps as an intensivist, the internist that you send your patient to or the family physician on the floor, the consulting vascular surgeon you talk to, or whatever the situation is. So in the future, uh, I think most of us doing ultrasound will not require any other study unless it can really provide additional information. But the pathway to that takes time. Right. 
Certainly, an exciting time to be a part of all of this. Let me ask you about another thing that undoubtedly will change over time, but I'm sure is something that you know a lot of us are thinking about as well, and that is reimbursement. Is there a way to actually have critical care specialists be reimbursed for the additional ultrasound technology that they're using? Yes, the question is absolutely yes. There are two pathways. One that we've seen is. Increasing the time coded for critical care. We do not recommend that. Discussing the legality of it is kind of beyond the scope of our conversation here, sure. but it's not recommended. Uh, it's, it could be viewed as upcoding potentially. The clearest pathway, and this is what has been tried and tested and successfully billed by many clinicians, including emergency medicine physical medicine, rehabilitation, family physicians, obstetricians, gynecologists, and others are utilizing the existing codes out there. As an intensivist, almost everything that one would want to do has uh, specific ultrasound codes for it. Now, for instance, there are probably uh, dozens of codes that apply, even to lung ultrasound, but definitely focused vascular ultrasound studies to rule out a DVT, focused cardiac. They differ from the codes that are typically utilized by our radiology and cardiology colleagues, but only in that they would typically use a comprehensive code. The comprehensive code bills much better. And let's say we are scanning the IVC for something or the aorta to rule out a AAA. The code for that is a focused code or a limited code. It brings in less reimbursement then the code that would be used by the radiology department because they would have the technologist scan the entire abdomen. The criteria for these codes is spelled out by CMS, uh, and the CPT code manuals are published. But the one we would use to screen the aorta is quite valid. In fact, our radiology colleagues could use it as well. But in their practice setting, it makes more sense to do a more comprehensive exam and bill the larger amount for the different code. Utilizing these codes, people have had successful ultrasound practices for years, and there are many examples. I'm more familiar with the emergency medicine ones around the country where very high-volume emergency departments bill appropriately in the millions per year for the ultrasound services that they provide to their patients. Sounds good. Do you have any recommendations about... Uh, ways of documenting the exam as completely as possible. It sounds like you do a written one. I do. I think uh, there are generally two types of ultrasound scan documentations. There is the one by the provider who is not credentialed by the hospital to do ultrasound in his or her setting. So that could be perhaps an educational type scan. So there the provider would want to document that they did an ultrasound because the patient many times will recall an ultrasound being done. They would not want to render a diagnosis. Technically, it shouldn't be part of their medical decision making. And uh, one would want to document that, let's say, I explained to the patient that this is an educational scan. I simply wanted to look at their aorta. The other one, and the one I think we're really talking about, is the documentation by a credential provider that would want to bill potentially, and definitely make a decision from their ultrasound scan. And that should be documentation that's appropriate to the examination. So if I were ruling out a pneumothorax in a patient, I would want to document what the indication was, which was the pneumothorax rule out. Why? Well, perhaps I just did a 
uh, central line or a thoracentesis on the patient. Document the approach that the patient was supine. Let's say I scanned two anterior or three anterior rib interspaces. I found a, a normal sliding lung sign, which is fairly good evidence that there is uh, not a pneumothorax present. And uh, there were no complications. The patient tolerated it well. Ideally, and I think this is a very critical part, I would store images that supported my diagnosis based on the scan and hopefully video. What I would really like to encourage people to avoid doing is not documenting. There is a tendency for especially providers that are early in their ultrasound practice career to think that if uh, there is no documentation, that the scan kind of didn't happen, and if they missed something, they'll be safe. And it actually turns out to be the opposite in many cases when things go wrong. So good documentation, I think, is very important and really is required of us as uh, clinicians when we render care to our patients. Sounds great. Well, uh, just to finish up our discussion about this area, I would like to um, ask you to share with us your thoughts about the future directions of critical care ultrasound, specifically in the following areas, education and certification, clinical application, financial considerations, collaboration with imaging specialists, if you have any thoughts about those. Sure. Those are quite a few, so I'll probably take them one at a time, and you'll have to remind me about a couple of them. So in terms of, I think you said the first one was clinical application? The first one I asked you about was education and certification, but clinical application um, as well. We'll tackle education and certification. So uh, certification, credentialing, accreditation, those are terms that a lot of people get confused. So certification is not something that's necessary in ultrasound for clinicians. And in this case, the AMA, American Medical Association, came out in 1999, I believe it was Resolution 802, stating that every physician's specialty will determine the criteria for them to be competent in ultrasound. So for SCCM, for instance, we have published criteria for hospital credentialing, and that's all an intensivist should really need to use ultrasound in their hospital setting. There is a lot of kind of external pressure and also insecurity that drives people towards certification. There is nothing from SCCM or really any other physician-based specialty society that is a certification for ultrasound. There is certification available in uh, new ones coming online from traditional technologist certifying bodies. And there are some drawbacks to potentially relying on those because they could become the litmus test for whether an intensivist is allowed to use ultrasound in his or her hospital. And it's best for the intensive care community to control that themselves. Clearly, some people are getting certified. There are certifications out there. But it's important to note that insurers, by and large, have said only thing that matters to them is hospital credentialing, but not the certification. There is a wild card out there, which is called accreditation, and that's a practice accreditation. So, for instance, uh, to the best of my knowledge, in the state of Virginia, to bill for any ultrasound services in the entire state, one would have to be accredited. Their practice would have to be accredited by one of three accreditation bodies. But that is not uniform throughout the country and maybe almost beyond our scope. Jumping to education, again, the future of education 
is, I think, very bright in that we would expect our trainees to come in fully functional with ultrasound from medical school, and all we would have to do is really hone their skills. Until then, it's going to be a hodgepodge of clinicians in practice getting uh, ultrasound education where they can from multimedia sources, from courses, etc., and then more and more education opportunities in residency and fellowships. Clinical application. I think a good kind of crystal ball glimpse into the future is what uh, some of our colleagues are doing in Europe. And as I mentioned before, they are really scanning head to toe. We're also seeing intensivists in Asia having a very broad practice. I think in the future, uh, we're not going to be uh, sticking to just fast. Uh, We're not going to stick to just cardiac. But look at cardiac, ocular applications, vascular, uh, look at soft tissue applications. And one thing we'll see in Europe and in Asia is that intensivists are doing a lot of abdominal applications, scanning for gallbladder disease, kidney disease, obviously, uh, vascular pathology, and sometimes bowel pathology. So I think in the future, it'll definitely spread And uh, it'll be aided by increasing automation on the part of ultrasound manufacturers. I think in the future, we're going to be able to use a specialized cardiac transducer or probe that'll image an entire live 3D volume for us very quickly and probably automatically generate some of the things we're interested in, such as cardiac output, ejection fraction, etc. So the, the future is very bright but it'll be more complicated in the sense that there will be more applications used on a daily basis by intensivists. Sounds pretty exciting. And I also wanted to ask you about the future of financial considerations and collaboration with imaging specialists. Certainly. Financial considerations, I think more and more intensivists are going to realize that uh, they can bill and be reimbursed for the services they're provided, and it's quite appropriate. The question in time is, Will a lot of these services be bundled? Uh, For some time, it's been under discussion that uh, CMS will probably bundle ultrasound and central vascular access so that if you don't use ultrasound, you simply will not get reimbursed at all. And the combined payment may be just a little bit higher than what you can currently do, which is bill for the central line placement uh, and the ultrasound guidance separately. And we'll see that evolve. Uh, And I think as there's more and more bundling, ultrasound reimbursement will be rolled into all of the other reimbursement we get. And uh, one of the main things that uh, we'll get from ultrasound as a benefit is uh, decreased in terms of risk, increased efficiency, and improved patient safety. Eventually, I suspect individual reimbursement for procedures as a standalone may go away. As far as collaboration with imaging specialists, the trend we're seeing now is that our radiology colleagues are abandoning ultrasound. I saw a statistic recently that 60% of graduating residents from a radiology residency may not feel comfortable with ultrasound. And for those of us that grab our heads and say, how could this be? Think about the ultrasound practice setting in radiology it is probably not as robust as advanced imaging modalities like MRI, CT, and others. So in the future, it's possible we will do quite a bit of ultrasound that no one else does. I think as our medical school colleagues come up into residency training and radiology, it will be simply known that others do ultrasound besides radiologists, and that'll diffuse a lot of the tensions. 
And the wild card will be as there's more pressure to cut costs and uh, decrease radiation exposure, maybe our radiology colleagues will embrace ultrasound even more in the future and we'll have more to talk about jointly. I think we will all learn how to play in the sandbox together in time. Probably there's just a generational change that will need to occur again so that more open minds are uh, sitting around the table together. It certainly sounds like it's a brave new world and Yes, I think uh, it's time for all of us to embrace this technology. And I am really grateful that you could uh, take the time to speak with me and the audience today uh, about this topic. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the I Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Mark your calendar to attend the 45th Critical Care Congress to be held February 20th through 24th, 2016 in Orlando, Florida, USA. This five-day event will bring together more than 6,000 members of the critical care community from around the world and will offer opportunities to share creative and stimulating ideas make valuable connections, and obtain inspired perspectives. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Ludwig Lynn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altibates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.